Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Anda, or The Bride of the Sea, by H.P. Lovecraft, a poem um, uh, subtitled A Dull, Dark, Drear, Dactylic Delirium in Sixteen Silly, Senseless, and Sickly Stanzas. Or, Sickly Stanzas. No, no and. Um, I do have, I tracked down in my book that I got this from, uh, the first publication, um, and that was in uh, (laughs) a pamphlet or something called the providence amateur number one uh amateur one number two published in february 1916 and um it was uh written under the pseudonym theobald jr um and it um is criticized by hp lovecraft who wrote it (laughs) Um, he, he described it this way. Uh, in The Bride of the Sea, Mr. Louis Theobald Jr. presents a rather weird piece of romantic sentimentality of the sort afforded by bards of the early 19th century. The meter is regular, and no flagrant violations of grammatical or rhetorical precepts are to be discerned. Yet the whole effort lacks clearness, dignity, inspiration, and poetic spontaneity. Wow criticizing his own work and I think that's pretty funny. I, I do too. Um, I, I point out that the uh, poem is dedicated to uh, uh, respectfully dedicated with permission. <laughs> it says mm-hmm. to Maurice Winter Moe mm-hmm. Esquire. Uh, Maurice Winter Moe, as uh, you know, is one of uh, a group of three people, including H.P. Lovecraft, um, who were sort of a writer's circle. They mm-hmm. would uh, send each other their work and sort of try it out in advance. Um, it may well be that Under the Bride of the Sea is one of those tryout things mm-hmm. because it's clearly meant in some sense that is the this opening frame is meant to be funny, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a dull, dark, drear, dactylic delirium in 16 silly, senseless, sickly stanzas. Uh, obviously, he's just... Uh, enjoying playing word games. And Maurice Winter Moe, in fact, was not a lawyer. He had no right to the ESQ. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure that Lovecraft knew that. So he, he's playful in setting this thing up. Um, therefore, I can't help but wonder if maybe this isn't really meant as his most serious work. <laughs> so criticizing it was his own way of recognizing that he had let something go beyond the writer's circle into a more or less publicly visible uh, outlet um, without it actually having met his own standards. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, it, it's funny you call it a trial because there was one of the issues, uh, one of the amateur magazines, and they were called amateur magazines, um, one of them was called the tryout. Um, <laughs> they, that was not the one this one was published in, but uh, it was very interesting because they are um, publishing magazines that are seen by almost nobody. They're just published and subscribers who are fellow writers who are enjoying exercising their writing skills, um, amateur journalists, 
are the only ones to see them. And so it's very um, full of in-jokes and, and uh, such. And it's amazing that something that is so ephemeral and barely published, right? You know, these are so such amateur publications that, you know, they, they if to try and find one now will cost you thousands of dollars because they just <laughs> nobody right. kept them and there was you know only a hundred made or whatever but uh, somehow this one survived and we have it and i i think it's i think it's wonderful it's funny um i couldn't help but notice uh, jesse mm-hmm. that you said you had tracked down its original source right but the pdf you've created for us uh, makes it easy for us to find it it's published as part of a collection by hp lovecraft called the ancient track that's right so that's how I tracked it. <laughs> right. So I really, I guess that we've got the beginning, the beginning of it, which is some kind of silliness setting it up. Um, then we've got the poem itself. And at the end, there's an epilogue. Would you read it for us? I think one of the yes. questions is, is worth keeping in mind as we listen is whether the parts of it all cohere. And if so, in, in what way do they make a whole? Because they do sound – they're not all as playful as that opening, are they? No, they're not. Um, uh, there is an opening um, quotation also made up um, and by a Roman-sounding person that is just a combination of a couple of his friends' names, I think. Um, it goes, Ego canis lunem cano. My Latin is terrible, um, but I do see an I in there and a – uh, Canis is dog, and Lunum is, is that the moon? Yeah, yeah according to w- what I've found, and I don't really read Latin, is it's I, the dog, the gray moon. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's like uh, howling at the moon sort of thing. Um, <laughs> not sure what's going on there, but um, that's how it begins. And then I'll, I'll read the uh, the 16 silly, senseless, sick, sickly stanzas. And then uh, there, does that 16 include the final epilogue? Because it's got a different rhyme scheme and a different tone actually, completely. Actually, it does not. The, six, the 16 silly, senseless stanzas um, end, and then the epilogue not only has a different rhyme scheme, it's tacked on as an extra. Mm-hmm. It's a 17th stanza. Okay, good. All right, because, yeah, it, it has – it's in um, – uh, couplets and it's it, it feels completely different yep here we go black loom the crags of the uplands behind me dark are the sands of the far stretching shore dim are the pathways and rocks that remind me sadly of years in the lost nevermore soft laps the ocean on wave polished boulder sweet is the sound and familiar to me here, with her head gently bent on my shoulder, walked I with Unda, the bride of the sea. Bright was the morn of my youth when I met her, sweet as the breeze that blew in o'er the brine. Swift was I captured in love's strongest fetter, glad to be hers and she glad to be mine. Never a question asked I whence she'd wandered. Never a question asked she of my birth. Happy as children we thought not nor pondered glad with the bounty of ocean and earth once when the moonlight played soft mid the billows high on the cliff o'er the waters we stood bound was her hair with a garland of willows plucked by the fount in the bird-haunted wood 
Strangely, she gazed on the surges beneath her, charmed by the sound or entranced by the light. Then did the waves a wild aspect bequeath her, stern as the ocean and weird as the night. Coldly she left me, astonished and weeping, standing alone mid the regions she'd blessed. Down, ever downward, half gliding, half creeping, stole the sweet Anda in oceanward quest. Calm grew the sea and tumultuous beating, turned to a ripple as Anda the fair, trod the wet sands in affectionate greeting, beckoned to me and no longer was there. Long did I pace by the banks where she'd vanished, high climbed the moon and descended again. Gray broke the dawn till the sad night was banished, still ached my soul with its infinite pain. All the wide world have I searched for my darling, scoured the far deserts and sailed distant seas. Once on the wave while the tempest was snarling, flashed a fair face that brought quiet and ease. Ever in restlessness onward I stumble, seeking and pining, scarce heeding my way. Now have I strayed where the wide waters rumble, back to the scene of the lost yesterday. Lo, the red moon from the ocean's low hazes, rises in ominous grandeur to view. Strange is the face as my tortured eye gazes o'er the vast reaches of sparkle and blue. Straight from the moon to the shore where I'm sighing, grows a bright bridge made of wavelets and beams. Frail may it be, yet how simple the trying, wandering from earth to the orb of sweet dreams. What is yon face in the moonlight appearing? Have I at last found the maiden that fled? Out on the beam bridge my footsteps are nearing, her whose sweet beckoning hastens my tread. Currents surround me and drowsily swaying, far in the moon path I seek the sweet face. Eagerly hasting, half panting, half praying, forward I reach for the vision of grace. Murmuring waters about me are closing. Soft the sweet vision advances to me. Done are my trials, my heart is reposing. Safe with my Anda, the bride of the sea. Epilogue As the rash fool, a prey of Anda's art, drowns throw the passion of his fevered heart, so are your youth inflamed by tempters fair, bereft of reason and the manly air. How sad the sight of Strephon's virile grace turned to confusion at his Chloe's face, and ere Pelides, dear to Grecian eyes, sulking for loss of his thrice-cherished prize. Brothers, attend, if cares too sharply vex, gain rest by shunning the destructive sex. <laughs> well... <laughs> I wonder if what Maurice Winter Moe had just broke up with a girlfriend or something. <laughs> because I <laughs> respectfully dedicated. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> this is H.P. Lovecraft's bit of advice, I guess. At the end there. I, I, I think this the the 16 silly census stanzas work even better without the epilogue. It becomes... Um, not silly nor senseless or a delirium or sickly but rather beautiful and uh and uh charming 
Wow. I don't think of it as charming at all. I, I would say this, that um, there, this, this whole assemblage of things um, draws on a lot of writers we know, Lovecraft admired, and that that I think you and I admire, Jesse. Mm-hmm. I think that the the opening with the uh, fake Latin mm-hmm. uh, epigraph is uh, reminiscent of how Poe starts some of his uh, poems and short stories. I think having the first stanza end with that word "nevermore." Mm-hmm. When we have a story about someone who is uh, on the beach with his absent bride, uh, it reminds us an awful lot of both uh, the Raven with the Nevermore and the situation of Annabelle Lee. Yep. Um, I think if we were to just re, if we took away the beginning and said, okay, we won't, we won't have the the humorous part of this. Uh, we'll just start with it, with Black Looms the Crags of the Uplands behind me. Um, I'm with you. I think it would make uh, a, a moving story. I don't think it's a funny story. I think it's a moving story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a complex story. Um, but then the epi- epilogue, as you say, it it shifts. Um, instead of being an ABAB rhyme scheme, which in fact is carried out with dactyls, you know, bum, 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 right? They are dactylic. Uh, the the epi- epilogue is basically um, rhymed couplets, heroic couplets. It is in fact the same uh, rhyme and r- rhythm that um, Swift uses in Strephon and Chloe, mm-hmm. which you and I have discussed previously and is referenced here. Um, and if you take a look at Strephon and Chloe, it also has an epilogue. Mm-hmm. And, but it's, it's it, it, the whole of the story of Strephon and Chloe, I'll remind us, is uh, it's a silly joke mm-hmm. uh, about how first Strephon is just so dumbstruck by the glory of Chloe's beauty and he thinks of her as uh, beyond uh, physical imperfections and such things as smells and sweats and, you know, bodily uh, fluvia, uh, natural functions. But then, in fact, both he and she learn through marriage that the body is a fairly uh, uh, earthy thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is Swift is famous for that. But unlike what Swift is famous for in his satire, the epilogue comes along and says, so if you want to be happy, don't focus on the physical beauty, but focus on love and decency. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, if you attend to each other as, as people, then you will find you have friendship and love until as long as, as death does not separate you. It's really uh, a very interesting switch of tone, and it ends quite positively. Whereas here, Lovecraft gives us a switch of tone, and it ends quite negatively. Listen, if you want to be happy, just keep away from girls. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, and I can't help but wonder, given what we know about Lovecraft's own um, not particularly aggressive romantic life with any one um, and spending his life living with his mother until she passes away. Um, 
one can't help but wonder, is Lovecraft simply taking the the joke followed with a serious epilogue of Swift and reversing those to make it something serious with a uh, a jokey epilogue? Or is he really uh, saying, you know what? Women are evil. Um, they are the destructive sex and they cause the downfall of men. Uh, that word virile grace for Strephon is uh, perhaps telling. So I, and I don't know. I don't know how to read the epilogue, but I do know that it it's not just it doesn't exist just in relation to the poem that ahead of it. It exists in relation to the Swift because it gives us the same rhyme and meter and it makes a direct reference. It also makes a reference, by the way, to Pelides, which probably it means Achilles. Mm. Because Achilles is known as Peleus, Achilles, uh, his, that's his father. And there is a reference to Thetis, um, his mother, in Strephon and Chloe. And uh, Pelides, who was sulking around, um, that's the beginning of the Iliad, isn't it? Uh, yes. You know, uh, arms and the man I sing. And there's here is um, here is Achilles. Uh, gloomy because of what's happened to his lover Patroclus. So uh, this is a, it's not heterosexual or homosexual. It's basically saying, you know, keep away from love. (laughs) Although in this poem, it seems that it's located in the destructive sex. Um, That's less funny. You know, that's less funny. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm I'm tempted to just you know ignore the epilogue and just give it to my students as a a uh, as sort of a a re a retelling or another version of the same kind of story that's been told for thousands of years with Virgil and uh, Odysseus and um who's the guy who wrote uh the um Paradise Paradiso Dante. Dante. Dante, who has Virgil in it, right, and going to the underworld. And here we have, and and Annabelle, a retelling of that sort of, sort of a um, naturalistic version. There is no, there is no underworld. There's just the, the the life in the body. And here, um, the solution is not, um, you know, go mad and, um, and uh, sleep with the, the corpse of your dead love. Rather, here the solution is um, drown yourself in the ocean, um, and then he undercuts that and saying, no, "Don't, don't drown yourself in the ocean." I'm tempted to say, you know, I would love to use this poem minus the epilogue and the, and even the uh, subtitle and the and the quote because it it distracts from this what I think of as the core of the story. However, um, I think there is value in the epilogue um, if we read it closely, other than the the very um, good analysis you've given. I want to point to, I think, a little joke in there that I I enjoy. (laughs) And a few other things. So I'll just read it again. As the rash fool, a prey of Unda's art. Now, I'm a bit confused what Unda's art here is, but it does underscore um, her name. And... In my thinking about this, it underscores it. Yes, it underscores it. It underscores <laughs> her name, 
And am I thinking about why she's called that? I, before the podcast started, we talked a little bit about Undine, uh, the water spirit, right? Unda, mm-hmm. it makes me think Unda the sea, you know? Um, and it makes me think of her as sort of a, a mermaid returning to the sea. Um, she becomes enchanted by the sea and she beckons to him, but he does not follow. And later on, he goes around the world looking for her, including in the deserts. Um, But the only time he does see her is in the sea, in a reflection or a a sparkle in the wavelets. Um, So just that first line, as the rash fool, a prey of Undesart, it's almost like she's killing him um, in this story, according to this, drowns through the passion of his fevered heart. Now it sort of gives the onus back to our hero, whoever he is. Um, so are youths inflamed by tempters fair, bereft of reason and the manly air. That first sentence of the epilogue makes me laugh because they're bereft of reason. They, they're they acting on lust or love or, you know, the joy of being in love. And, and then the joke, and the manly air. Now... <laughs> You know how it is like to be a man, but also literally the the air for a man, um, which is what allows him to breathe. Um, and it makes me think um, it's not just a joke because it's almost like women are the sea, and this is often uh, how sailors refer to the sea, and men are the are the land. Um, and yes, there are mermen, but mermaids are far more common in in our sort of modern thinking about the sea and just the fact that ships that sail the sea are female. And there's, there's a nice distinction there, I think. Um, so I, I don't want to shun this last epilogue stanza, but it, I think it, I think he does undercut his own, his own skill because it, I think this is a really terrific story um, I mean, it might not be as great as Annabelle Lee, but that's a pretty great story. To, you know, that may be the most beautiful poem I've ever heard. And and this one's pretty good. So, you know, I sorry, you know, go for me. it. Go for it. I, I like to try to uh, to increase the uh, our admiration for the um, the integrity of the parts here. Mm-hmm. Um. I think that if we look at the the 16 stanzas alone, not only do they give us a Poe reference, mm-hmm. but they do lots of other stuff as well. For example, uh, if, if one looks at beach imagery, uh, I have found over, over many years that phenomenologically, the beach is a zone of conflict between elementally contending forces. You see this in books like On the Beach. You see it with the beach imagery in The Island of Dr. Moreau. You see it in Robinson Crusoe. Again and again, we have elementally opposing forces that meet on the beach. And in this poem, it begins with uh, our speaker representing the land. Black loom the crags of the uplands behind me. Mm -hmm. Dark are the sands of the far stretching shore. Dim are the pathways and rocks that remind me, sadly, of years in the lost nevermore. Then, 
soft laps the ocean on wave polished boulder sweet is the sound and familiar to me here with her head gently bent on my shoulder walked i with unda the bride of the sea interesting phrase so mm-hmm. that we've got the land and the sea coming together uh, on the shore she's not the bride from the sea right she may be the bride he gets as the she is his bride of the sea uh, or it could be that she is married to the sea as a female acolyte may be married to her god uh, some say that nuns are married uh, you know to jesus mm-hmm. uh, this this is a uh, a powerful representation of things that are elementally different and we get this use of the elements in the literal sense, you know, the earth and so on, again and again and again in this 16 stanzas, so that at the end when he gives in to the woman and walks out into the sea, he crosses the shore and then goes out into the water. It's very reminiscent of the ending of Kate Chopin's, uh, Chopin, Chopin's um, The Awakening, 1899 which is a well-known book at this time, at the time of the writing of this, mm-hmm. and also has someone just going off into the sea in order to find a better kind of love, even if it costs one's life. So we, we have here um, something about difference, um, conflict, that nonetheless gives us a sense of the possibility of love. In that regard, it's reminiscent of La Belle Dame Sans Merci. Mm-hmm. You know, once you've seen this, you know, how can you ever be the same? So what's the this? As you say, the sea is often female. Here, the sea is absolutely female because it's responsive to the moon, mm-hmm. right? It's got its monthly cycles. And you can read each of these pa- passages of description as, in fact, the the high tide coming in. Once when the moonlight played soft mid the billows, High on the cliff or the waters we stood, bound was her hair with a garland of willows. Okay, willows, of course, think of weeping willows mm-hmm. with their, their going down into the water. So he's imagining this. Plucked by the fount in the bird-haunted wood, strangely she gazed on the surges beneath her. Charmed by the second or entranced the sound or entranced by the light, then did the waves a wild aspect bequeath her. Stern as the ocean and weird, which means fate, of course, in Old English, weird as the night. Coldly she left me, astonished and weeping, standing alone mid the regions she blessed. Down, ever downward, half gliding, half creeping, stole the sweet undra in oceanward quest. It's, it's the tide coming in, flowing, and then ebbing. Mm-hmm. And at the high tide, the crashing of the surf is what he sees at the top of the cliff. So we can read this whole poem as if it's just a projection of a guy who's crazy and thinks that he has a bride in this, you know, these images he plucks out of the natural world. Or we can think of it a poet who is using all of this as a metaphor, or we can think of it as an actual spirit of the ocean that has come and caused this fellow to lose his life forever because he he wants to go back to her and he cannot after she goes back to the sea. And so he becomes happy to go out there. This this moonbeam bridge is, in fact, the, the moon 
showing him the way to get further out into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And it's the moon that controls the tides. So we have this three ways of looking at the poem. And there's no resolution to those three ways. But getting into the poem, what we find is, hey, we're just kids. We're just playing with poetry and ideas. And look, we're playing with ideas that Poe played with and we're making up Latin stuff. You know, we're just playing. Mm -hmm. But then when we think about it, we don't know whether we're playing with metaphors or we really are pulled away to something. And my gosh, Mm -hmm. if that's something that pulls us away can be fatal Maybe, you know what, maybe we shouldn't get too serious about this. (laughs) And the easiest way to stop our seriousness is to decide that it's the girl's fault Mm -hmm. and they become the destructive sex. So if you read the poem that way, the opening, the front matter tells us about one fellow writing to another fellow. Right. That's that's why the. uh, you know, and, 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 and building him up, Mr. Moe-esque, you know, um, one fellow writing to another fellow, then getting into the writing of the poetry, he realizes how powerful can be the hold one's imagination has on one that, that we can, in fact, yearn forever, even enough to want to die. And so, by golly, let's take the not not the immediacy of Poe's meter and rhythm, meter and rhyme, let's go back for the cooler, ironic view of Swift and give ourselves a little distance here in order to keep ourselves safe. Looked at that way, it seems to me that the three parts together actually form a poem about the effort of a poet, a young man trying to deal with issues of love through his poetry and getting scared by what he discovers. And so trying to save himself by falling back on a different poet's solution. Yep. I, um, I, I am reinforced in my thinking of how poey this is um, by a couple of words in the early stanzas. Um, so we've got, I love that, that one you read, uh, once... When the moonlight plays soft mid the billows, high on the cliff or the waters we stood, bound was her hair with a garland of willows, plucked by the fount in the bird-haunted wood. So in the wood, where they wandered away from the shore, uh, they find a, a water, and there a, wo- uh, a willow, which is tied to the water. And the I love the, the forest is haunted by birds. Um, they're, they're heard but not seen again they're in the darkness as well as far as i can tell this entire story takes place at night when he wanders the world there's no mention of the the sun in the desert although why he's looking for his bride of the sea in the desert is a little bit <laughs> questionable but i note that in the surrounding stanzas we actually get almost that shout out the billows on the moon make me think of uh, around the moon make me think of the angels uh who are jealous of her and me in the um Annabelle right so i just want to point out that the stanzas that surround this center of the of the poem are very poey and very annabelle never a question asked i whence she wandered never a question asked she of my birth notice that she has wandered before 
um, if she is the sea. Happy as children, we thought not nor pondered. And in I in Annabelle, it's I was a child and she was a child. Um, happy it's as children by the sea. Yeah, happy as children makes us think of the innocence of children as well. Um, and then uh, we are just glad with the bounty of ocean and earth. Again, the bounty of male and female, the bounty of of the the two p- places that meet at the beach, which is where they are. And then um, when she goes away, coldly she left me, astonished and weeping, again to the weeping willow, standing alone mid the region she'd blessed, down ever downward, half gliding, half creeping. And that makes me think she's transforming into a, into a, um, into a mermaid or something. It's strange. Stole the sweet Anda in Ocean Request. And the reason that the angels um, take her away from me uh, is their jealousy, right? Who's jealous here? The bride of the sea. Well, maybe the sea's jealous. And what does the the sea do? It, it, it gives him a glimpse of her. The moon uh, provides the pathway and he walks out into the pathway to seeing her beckoning him again. He goes in and drowns himself. This is um, an image that he uses again in a short story called The White the White Ship, um, where a lone lighthouse keeper uh, sees a ship go by several times. And um, one day, the, the I think it's the moon, br- creates a, a bridge of moonbeams or a rainbow bridge that allows him to cross over to the ship that always sails by and off at the end of the story, off the edge of the world, the destruction of, of those who would seek the sea. It's just beautiful. And, and it's not Annabelle Lee, but he is so informed by, by it and all, all the things that Annabelle Lee is are informed by it. I, I find it hard to dismiss it the way he does. As just a silly, silly oh, I, story. I don't think he's dismissing it um, here. I mean, the moon never beams without bringing me dreams mm-hmm. of my lover, my my life, my bride, by the sea, by the side of the sea. I mean, the moon never beams without bringing me dreams is in Annabelle Lee, yep. and it's here as well. I, I, I don't know that we said this, but we should. Under means wave in Latin. Mm. I mean, it's it's the source of the word undulate. And when he says the speaker of those middle 16 stanzas says that I thought I saw her face in the sea. That doesn't mean that he saw her underneath the surface. Mm. It's the undulations that, you know, it's like, you know, you look up in the clouds and you see something. You know, I, pareidolia, you, mm-hmm. you see a face, even though it's just a cloud. Well, you can look in, in the, the white foam of surf and see clouds as well. In fact, um, Aphrodite comes out of the surf. That's what mm-hmm. the word Aphrodite means, called from the surf. And she is the goddess of love. So Unda can just appear to be in the surf. There's nothing there. It's just the undulations that make it appear because of the way the light plays across the movement of the surface and then the vision of the young man or certainly here the poet seeing things in there. But that becomes potentially dangerous, which is why there needs to be an epilogue. 
You're right. I was just thinking the undulations in the desert now make a lot more sense, don't they? Indeed. Desert dunes. Wow. Good stuff. There is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. Thank you.